Hello and welcome back to Talk Evidence, your periodic look at the world of evidence. Our home and work lives continue to be dominated by COVID and this is our focus again today, but we're going to throw a bit of hypertension in right at the end for some variety. So up this week, Duncan discovered a rather interesting paper on a preprint server med archive on longer outcomes after severe COVID. I've been thinking about vaccines again and finally to the blood pressure paper. I'm Helen McDonald, UK Research Editor at the BMJ and Resting GP. And as usual, I'm joined by Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor at the BMJ. Hi, Duncan. Hi, everyone. Hello. And we welcome back one of our special guests, Joseph Ross. Or can we call you Joe today? Sure. Hey, everyone. My name is Joe Ross. I'm a, uh, one of the associate editors, uh, I guess the user, US Research Editor at the BMJ and also a professor of medicine and public health at Yale. And just by, just so everyone's aware, I'm also a co-founder of MedArchive, a preprint platform, and we're going to talk about one of those papers. Oh yeah, slight, slight uh, declaration of interest there. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of 18,000 papers that we've posted on our preprint oh. platform. I'm not that individually invested in any of them. So it's not that special? <laughs> You're not Well, let's make a start. Let's turn to this long-term outcomes after COVID first, um, because this was your great spot, Duncan. And it doesn't feel like that long ago that we were talking on the show about those first case reports. In fact, it was about a year ago. Um, I think it was exactly. NEGM yeah. Yeah, had published a case report. And, and me, um, you, Duncan and Carl were, were remarking at how unusual that was. And then we saw these small case series um, of people who'd just been diagnosed with this new mysterious disease and then the huge um, case series or database studies with outcomes for whole populations. And we kept saying, um, but look, all of this finishes it at 28 days and we don't know what happens beyond that. Um, and I think that's become increasingly interesting because we now understand that COVID is much more than an isolated respiratory illness. It can get just about anywhere in our bodies. And we've become aware of much more protracted um, course um, or long COVID um, as it's become known. So Duncan, anyway, you spotted this uh, paper. Do you want to tell us a bit about it? And then and then we'll pick through it. Yeah, sure, of course. Um, this reminds me of, uh, loyal listeners might remember, we had someone on talking about rehab after being in hospital um, with COVID. And this is who uh, this paper is looking at. This is about post-COVID or what people are calling long COVID. We've seen, you know, data come out on how long people have symptoms like fatigue and things for, but this is a new matched cohort study. And I think Joe can probably explain that better than me. So I'll wait till uh, he can chime in there. Um, But in layman's terms, um, they've got this large cohort of people who were hospitalised with COVID in the UK and survived and then were discharged. Um, There's almost 50,000 of them. And what they've done is match that cohort with another cohort who have the same sort of underlying demographics, age and sex and things, um, but also importantly, the clinical conditions that they have. And remember, if you write at the beginning of this, um, some of the things we were talking about there were, you know, how heart disease and diabetes might have had worse outcomes. So they followed this cohort of COVID patients for 140 days um, and their matched cohort for slightly longer, 153 days. And in that time, they looked at um, all-cause mortality, respiratory disease, uh, readmission to hospital, 
major adverse cardiovascular events, and that's a composite outcome of heart failure, MI, stroke, and arrhythmia. They looked at diabetes, types 1 and 2, chronic kidney disease, and chronic liver disease. They did some stats, and again, I'm going to hand this over to Joe and Helen <laughs> to talk about. Um, but it looks like they standardised um, to the baseline characteristics of that cohort group to the general population. Um, and then they pulled the data from the, the population and worked out adverse events per thousand person years. And I'd quite like to know why that was a thing that they did. But if we took that as read, then the results seemed pretty major. So... The chances of being readmitted uh, in the cohort of COVID patients compared to the other ones um, was about 3.5 times. And then those people who were admitted, they had a 7.7 times greater chance of dying uh, than the matched cohort. The respiratory outcomes, um, people with COVID were six times more likely to be diagnosed with a respiratory disease and 27 times more likely for that to be a new diagnosis. Um, so those were the huge differences, but the other outcomes, measures that they chose were also more likely to be higher in the COVID cohort. Cardiovascular outcomes, three times more likely to have one, uh, 1.5 times like more likely to get diabetes, 1.9 times more likely to get kidney disease, 2.8 times more likely to get chronic liver disease. They did some secondary analysis where they stratified by ICU admission, so I'm presuming that's a proxy for severity here. And those who had been in ITU, so who had had a more severe disease, were more likely to have post-discharge respiratory disease and diabetes. But for those who weren't in ICU, so less disease, they seemed to be more likely actually to be readmitted, die or have cardiovascular events. And they also did some more stratification by other demographic factors. And it looks like age and ethnicity might affect some outcomes too. So all in all, it seemed like, you know, this is pretty significant, this paper, and it really just goes to show how much COVID um, affects the the whole body and all all of our various organ Mm. systems. Well, let's have a closer look. Amongst your 18,000 other papers on Med Archive, Joe, is this unique? <laughs> is, it, is this a new, a new, the latest trend that we're seeing accumulating on there, the, the long COVID papers? Well, I think first, before I even talk about the paper itself, I mean, um, this is why uh, I think it's always important to note this was posted as a preprint, right? And so it has not yet undergone peer review. And so, you know, there's a lot of numbers in here that I can tell you as a someone who sort of specializes in these types of studies and methods, they jump out, the, the these numbers jump off the page at you, but I, I'm not yet certain of their accuracy in terms of the rigor with which they've sort of come to these estimates. That doesn't mean they're, they're wholly wrong, but I think that, uh, that, that these are a little, probably a little outlandish. And I'll explain why, but even so, like this, this issue of long COVID, I think is the most important uh, sort of uh, set of studies that we need to do in terms of helping our patients, the world, uh, recover through this illness. And, uh, you know, yes, now we have a vaccine and now we can, we're hopefully doing a better job with enacting preventive measures. But, you know, there's been more than 100 million people worldwide who've, you know, had COVID. Uh, There's still half a million people a day getting infected as the vaccines are being rolled out there. And people, 
we know are, you know, developing these long-term sequelae and symptoms. And so there's a whole field of investigation that's launching to try to better understand it. And I could like, you know, at our hospital in, at Yale, you know, we had now have a specialized clinic that's dedicated just towards taking care of these sort of persistent symptoms among people who've had COVID. So this is a big clinical problem. And so it's, we are starting to see studies like this to try to really get at the, you know, what, what do these patients experience long-term? Because Helen, like you said, it, it's a very strange virus. It gets all over our bodies. It's not just in our lungs. When I was taught by John Fletcher, <laughs> one of our other research editors, um, how to start reading research papers, the thing that I've always held on to is that you have to start by really grappling with what the research question is here and, and really trying to write it out. And I got a bit mystified when I started to do this here to work out, is this really the question that we want answered? So this this was my best shot. So Joe, you can tell me how you think I've got on. I think this paper is looking at among people who survived an admission from or maybe with COVID, what are the outcomes up to around six months compared to those people who may or perhaps may not have had COVID, but perhaps went to hospital around the same time? First step is, yes, it's uh, they're trying to characterize the outcomes of patients who've survived discharge after being hospitalized for COVID. And I think the most important number in this paper is actually 40% of the people that were hospitalized for COVID at the time when they wrote this paper, had not yet been discharged alive. Most of whom had died, some of whom were just still in hospital. But, you know, that is astounding that, you know, 40% of the cohort of patients that were potentially eligible had either died or still were in hospital. And maybe when they when they looked at the data, you know, when you cut the data set at that moment in time, maybe some of those people were, you know, in hospital for a day, other people for a month. Uh, but, you know, we know that once you're hospitalized, mortality rates approach 30 percent to, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30 percent, depending on the census of the hospital, actually, more than anything else, as opposed to the treatment we can offer. So it's just a it's a terrible, burdensome disease with so many people still dying when they have severe hospitalized COVID. So but so this question, right. So what, what the, this gets at, so what's the right comparison group? Because it's one thing to sort of tick off and describe the rates, uh, which this paper can obviously do, you know, people are discharged alive. What happens? How often do they come back to the hospital for these problems? And that's an important caveat because we know from taking care of patients in the community that lots of people have respiratory problems or other problems, but that doesn't mean they get readmitted back into the hospital for that problem. So these are only identifying the people who have really severe complications after COVID, because they've come back and been readmitted to the hospital for this problem. So that's, you know, again, you're sort of raising the bar of the severity, right? So these are patients with severe disease, and then you're only looking at the most severe sequelae of the disease, coming back and being admitted to the hospital. You know, if I had COVID and I continued to feel short of breath, short of breath, you know, for which is what we're hearing and what, you know, journalists are writing about, you know, I'm not coming back to the hospital. I may, maybe I would go to the physician and see them and say, I'm having these these lung problems. Maybe you could prescribe a medication for me that would help. But this study is not capturing that. They're not capturing people who came back to see their doctor or people who had symptoms. So this is really just the tip of the iceberg and really just the, the worst of the worst. Because this is done using coding primarily, isn't it? This is kind of a, a database study in a, in a way rather than taking a group of people and sort of meticulously 
I suppose, investigating and probing, do you have this or the other? It's primarily looking for hard-coded, in a way, diagnostic outcomes rather than symptomatology like feeling short of breath, that kind of thing. So in terms of the burden of symptoms, this this isn't going to take us there, but in terms of some of those diagnoses, it, it, it may. Yeah. No, no, this is what what I've always said, the ideal study we need, and actually in our group, we've proposed it a se- several times, but haven't gotten it off the ground, which is identify people when they come in and get tested for COVID. And when if they test positive, continue to follow them and just ask them questions via their phone every day. Like, are you short of breath? Are you having this? Are you having that? Did you have to go to the doctor? Right? Because that that's the burden of COVID on the population. This is these are just the most severely ill patients. So in their study, which is, you know, essentially using hospital data records, right, they characterize these very high rates. And I think one of the challenges I have as an investigator reading their methods is you're not 100% sure of who their comparison group is. But the best that I can tell, they're comparing it to the general population. And as a physician, that's less interesting to me because we know that anyone who gets admitted to the hospital for any reason is worse off from a health standpoint than the general population. They are more likely to die. They're more likely to be readmitted to the hospital. They're more likely to have subsequent health problems like cardiovascular disease and diabetes. So this isn't telling me necessarily that COVID is the culprit. As far as I know, it's just that they were severely ill. So really what uh, I think, a pa- you know, a paper like this that's really going to help us is we, we need a, a control group that kind of closely approximates the people who were admitted for COVID. So I think ideally you would be comparing them to patients who had been admitted to the hospital for pneumonia or other, you know, viral respiratory diseases. So you can say, okay, here's a group of people with COVID and here's a group of people who had such bad bacterial infections in their lungs or viral infections in their, in their lung that they also had to be hospitalized, right? And then look, what happens to them afterwards in terms of the sequelae? And that would really help disentangle, you know, what is long COVID? What are these long-term complications that are unique to this, you know, this coronavirus? Joe, I want you to tell us um, from your research angle, when I dig into these observational studies, I think you start to, I like to play sort of um, word bingo to myself <laughs> <laughs> with, with, the, with the kind of words that you see Plus in, regression. in research. Yeah. Um, and, and observational studies are quite rich for things like this. Aren't they? they talk about adjustment and matching, and sometimes you have propensity scores and things like this. Tell us a bit about in in those core um, decisions that you make about how you design and how you analyze this study. What what drives that? How do those methods help you out? Don't make fun of our statistical terms, Helen. They're... <laughs> I'm not. I'm trying to make it listener friendly. If I just said, give me a lecture on propensity scores, everyone's going to go to sleep. <laughs> no, I get that. No, no. Well, you know, like I, you know, in any, you know, the gold standard for research, right, is a randomized trial. And the, and the reason it's a gold standard is because you take a big population of people that you've defined and you randomly 
allocate them to one arm or the other and then study their outcomes. And the reason that that's the gold standard is by randomly allocating, you ensure to the best, you know, best, ch- best of chance that there won't be any important differences between the two groups of people, both in things that you can think of are important, like you want to always want to make sure that the, the age of the two populations that you're going to compare are the same because we know older people generally have worse health and are going to do worse in, you know, in, in, you know, in terms of most health outcomes. Or people with cardiovascular disease and diabetes at baseline, you know, they're going to do worse, right? So you want to make sure that it's randomly distributed and that the two groups are balanced. But you also want to make sure that it's a random for things you would never even consider or think of or be able to randomize on the basis of. You know, maybe there's some weird genetic thing in the world that that we don't haven't even discovered yet. Well, when you do a randomized trial, your, your best guess is that they're randomly split between the two groups. And so at the end of the day, when you look at the outcomes of that trial, you can reasonably attribute any difference to the intervention, you know, the, the only difference between the two groups. In observational research, we can't do that. And that's just one of the big limitations. And we do the best we can. So first, we start by adjusting. And adjustment just means accounting for any any characteristics of the people in the study that you can think of uh, that are that might be important. So that also includes age. You can adjust for age and sex and you know other sociodemographic characteristics in your in in the population. Uh, you can adjust for geographic location. You can adjust for clinical characteristics. But what you can adjust for is entirely and wholly dependent on what information is in your data set. You know we know that income particularly in the United States, an unfair society like I live in, you know, income plays a huge role in health outcomes. Well, most data sets don't include any signal or marker or represent, you know, representative income. So we can never adjust for it in our analyses. And there's all sorts of sort of wiggle things that we can try to do, but it's less perfect than actually knowing somebody's wealth. You know, how, how, what kind of income do they have uh, that they can use to take care of themselves because we know that the wealthier you are, the, the healthier you are. So that's adjustment. In propensity matching, it's like adjustment, but to like an even higher degree. So what we do is, you know, for we take all of the information that we know uh, for all the data that we have for, for our two, for our patients, you know, the patients in the study. And this can include things like age and sociodemographics and other clinical characteristics. It's just what we have. And then we create, we essentially match people. So that, and we can define how close the match needs to be, where we say every 45-year-old who we're looking at who, you know, has the disease, we're going to match them to another 45-year-old who didn't have the disease. And they also need to be the same on, you know, sex and, you know, whether or not they had cardiovascular disease and blah, 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 blah. And usually the way to do this is, you know, you the, the people you have of interest is a smaller population and you have a much bigger population of people to potentially match from. And so you try to match as many people as you can. And so you end up with uh, like a one-to-one-ish group. And ideally, mm. you've, you've done a match so that more than 90% of the people who had the intervention or the, the disease in question, you've matched successfully. So you have, you have a good representation and then you follow that group. So that's what propensity is. Essentially, a simple, a simplified version of propensity. The, the propensity matching—that's like something you do up front, almost like as you're saying, almost like you're trying to create your own randomization. Whereas the adjustment feels like something that happens later down the line when you've when you've got your outcomes, if you like. 
It's a little bit like that. I mean, both both are ideally pre-specified, you know, in the best of worlds, like an investigative team have sort of laid out their decisions and the way they're going to approach the data before they've even looked at the data, right? I mean, all those things. But yes, the the match is at the cohort, so as you're, as you're creating the sample, whereas adjustment, per se, happens during the statistical analysis after you've already sort of look, you're looking at the outcomes and then you're trying to account for differences between the two groups. And the goal is... You're adjusting for known confounders, the things that might affect, right? Your 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 or mm. bias the the uh, the effective estimate, um, but you're sort of crossing your fingers that you're also you know adjusting for unobserved confounders. You're doing the best you can, right? And that that's like what propensity matching is. Mm. Can we talk a bit about the databases as well? Because I'm just wondering, you know, there are a lot of well characterized databases out there that. If you are a research editor and you have to read lots of research um, coming in, you get used to hearing about um, particular groups and, and databases that are commonly used. What problems do you think they all suffer from or some of them suffer from with respect to COVID? Because I've been pondering sort of in, in, the, in the UK scenario, we have this situation, for example, where COVID testing happens kind of a little bit remote to the normal day-to-day healthcare record it's happening in a different center and then it's only actually been relatively recently that primary care have received the results of those COVID tests and the coding of those as I understand it is then a manual process so somebody in a GP surgery is going to have to decide whether they code anything at all whether they code positive COVID results whether they code negative COVID results and that's to me seems really important if we want to be doing big database studies but perhaps i become a bit overly obsessed with that i don't know joe what what, what are your thoughts well let, let me sh- share with you a, a, a you may be surprised to learn no database is perfect <laughs> well that, that i could i could predict <laughs> you know because data are aggregated and collected for lots of reasons and one of the unfortunate reasons that is rarely at the top is research, right? So, you know, we are using them for research purposes, but they aren't, we're not necessarily collected for that purpose. So, for instance, lots of hospital databases, you know, they include information that is more relevant to billing than it was to actual the care of the patient, right? So in the United States, that's a particular challenge for us is data are organized in order to facilitate building billing to the insurance payers, not necessarily for the care and management of patients. And so for, you know, uh, and that appears, uh, you know, we have their sociodemographic characteristics. We know a bit about them in terms of their past clinical history from other codes that have been issued in taking care of them or what codes were issued when, when they were cared for on that hospitalization. But most hospital databases don't include links to uh, like their laboratory data or their imaging data, right? Or even their necessarily their pharmaceutical claims, right? And so you're looking at data that represent one portion of the care, but it's not everything. So the, the COVID test may not be in there. And so we may be relying on the, the billing code for COVID, and we know, particularly in the beginning of the pandemic, when testing was really awful, uh, it was about kind of 50-50. You would either have a code for, you know, the patient had COVID or the patient was suspicious of COVID, but we couldn't get a test, right? And so there's this question, well, you know, maybe they were just admitted for a bad, you know, lung disease. And so 
you know, it, again, it, it gets at the limitations of, of whatever data you have available to you. So do you think there are good databases out there which are going to give us quality research on real life COVID outcomes? Well, the best databases will be ones that are explicitly designed to tell us to answer that question. Like like the one I was suggesting that we, we've wanted to do, which is you find a population of people either just diagnosed with a disease and you follow them for a long time. But it's that's creating a new database, right? You're creating a research database. So just, you know, kind of the off the shelf kind of what's going on, you know, there's always going to be compromises. And so, the, you know, like for this, this MedArchive preprint, right, you know, they took off the shelf, you know, this, you know, this hospital database that the, you know, that's been aggregated in England. And, you know, that's, that's what's there. I think we should get our heads out of methodology now. So Joe, what was your clinical bottom line on the paper? Uh, well, you know, th- this is a really interesting because the rates of death for these patients, even post-discharge, were very high. And the rates of all of these, you know, subsequent readmissions for all of these reasons over six months were very high. I expect that they... It, we will still be higher than you know an appropriate control group. It's not surprising to me that it's substantially higher than the general population. Uh, so I hope that th- this group will continue to to revise their estimates and and get closer to the truth, so we can really better understand the implications of this you know dreadful disease. Next, I wanted us to turn to some more complicated evidence on vaccines. It feels like we we talked a lot about treatments for COVID on the show before, and particularly about our living systematic review and network meta-analysis on COVID treatments. And I guess that still feels quite empty in a way because there's not very much that worked and we didn't have to start comparing stuff particularly because um, there's not very much that works. But in contrast... It feels like in recent weeks and months, we've heard loads and loads and loads about vaccines. And I'd started to become a bit overwhelmed um, with what I was hearing. I think having multiple types of vaccines that might work, having different brands um, of the same type, which kind of work. We've heard about emerging evidence on their ability to prevent admissions um, and serious disease as well as um, symptomatic infection. We've got emerging data coming through on whether they might prevent transmission in the community. Um, some reporting of differing judgments by policymakers because of a lack of data in over 65s for the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. And then we had this announcement this week, I think it was the, the 4th of February, uh, of a trial which is going to look at the efficacy of offering different types of COVID vaccination and whether they might be more or less worth it. Um, And then, of course, we've still got the uncertainty about the long term. But whilst we were thinking about observational research, Joe, I wanted to ask you how you think observational research might help in the vaccine story. I actually think we're in a really good position with the vaccine story in the sense that Observational research, I expect, will be useful and potentially characterizing, you know, safety and adverse events after the vaccine and whatnot. But um, it's actually pretty amazing. I mean, I I, actually, I can't think of a intervention that's been as well studied already. I think more than a hundred thousand people have already been studied as part of randomized control trials for the various vaccines, many of which are quite similar. And so we can kind of glean, kind of collectively, you know, either like a 
there's 45,000-ish or so in the mRNA vaccine trial so far, and I think 60-some-odd thousand in the non-mRNA. But we know that they work, right? Like, that's what's amazing. And uh, we know that they work. We know that they're safe. And, uh, you know, observational research really plays a critical role to complement randomized controlled trial evidence, particularly when it's not there or we don't have evidence for certain populations who weren't eligible for the trials. And so I, obviously that still matters for, you know, I don't, I don't think any trial has included um, children under the age of 16, but it's amazing. This is going to like go down in history as one of the best studied interventions ever. I mean, I think we've already eclipsed the amount of people who've been studied in statin trials, for instance. And so like, it's amazing. And, um, you know, uh, we'll use observational research to better understand, you know, the threshold for immunity, how many people in a, in a general population have to be immunized to see rates drop to zero and all that other stuff. But I, I think that we've been well served by the randomized clinical trial infrastructure that's, that, that's launched to, to study these vaccines. I'm loving the US optimism here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, Joe, one of the big live questions in the UK at the moment is about the vaccine spacing between first dose and second dose. And we had some trial evidence about that and then now the government over here has said pragmatically they want to get more people with the first dose have some sort of level of immunity in the population before the second one and that leaves lots of questions uh, about that is that something that we can look at retrospectively or would that have been much better set up in a pragmatic trial as it was being it, I, I wish they had set it up pragmatically as part of the RCT. And we, we would be in much better position now if every company that was running a trial uh, had tested a one-dose uh, versus a two-dose as part of the trial, just because we are left to guess, right, based on kind of it, it, serologic data, of all things, and then the sort of long-term... Because we, ne- we don't... We don't ever know what would have happened if people didn't get that second dose, that booster at three or four weeks, depending on which vaccine they got. So we're just sort of left to guess. I don't envy the decision that policymakers were in as they're facing limited supply and an overwhelmed population. And there's been interesting modeling studies that have sort of offered best guesses on what would be the, the right approach that have concluded that a one dose vaccine was better than uh, and, in, you know, half the population getting a two-dose vaccine. And uh, I just think it's an unanswerable question and, and a and difficult position to be in. Well, I think we should pick up on that and try and get some insights from someone on one of the vaccine committees about how they are, well, I guess managing this process, dealing with the huge amount of largely um, positive-sounding evidence that's coming in front of them and how they're they're managing to kind of deal with that that deluge and and the questions about prioritization and and all of the issues that must be facing them now so many issues yeah well good luck with that i'm sure they'll uh they'll be delighted to um oh, you're assigning that as an action helen are you yeah yeah off you go <laughs> welcome back to work here's the thing <laughs> So in various of the other podcasts we've done, it's all been about COVID, but other bits and pieces have snuck back in. And, you know, the world of medicine hasn't stopped just because people have a virus. There is still heart attacks going on and cancers to be treated and things. And I suppose it'd be nice to uh, to hear a little bit of non-COVID 
research. Get back to the old days of talk evidence. It's always hypertension. We used to talk about um, evidence that might make us stop and start doing things all the time on talk evidence. So I, I kind of got back into the groove a bit this week um, when I spotted this paper in BMJ. It's, as always, got a really catchy title. This one's called Home and Online Management and Evaluation of Blood Pressure <laughs> Using a Digital Intervention in Poorly Controlled Hypertension, a Randomised Controlled Trial. And as always, it has an acronym, although this one's actually not too bad. It's called Home BP. This one's great. What do you mean not too bad? That's faint praise. This is a great acronym. <laughs> I thought, well, you're a researcher, Joe. You have to see these. And I mean, this one's actually quite good because at least it's taking home online management evaluation to spell home. At least they're taking the first letter of each word. Quite often, it's just like a random letter in each word that's been capitalized <laughs> just, just to make a word. word. This so is I, one of the best, best acronyms I've ever seen. It's, a, it's, it's catchy. It actually captures the essence of the trial. So there you go, listeners. Now you know how to get uh, your research through the MJ. <laughs> Although, I mean, we're saying this is away from COVID, but we can still kind of connect this to COVID via two routes, because I guess we know that cardiovascular disease and hypertension, therefore, is kind of connected to being a risk factor for, for COVID. And we also know that remote care is something that we all need to be doing uh, more of um, to try and keep people safely away from um, healthcare services where they might be exposed to more risk of COVID at the moment. So... Let me tell you a little bit about this study. So this was looking at people who have poor blood pressure control in primary care. So they have an average second, third reading of blood pressure above 180 over 90 when they're assessed for this study and they're taking no more than three medications. So they're not sort of people um, that are cared for away in secondary or tertiary care. And they're looking at um, usual care, which is sort of periodic clinic visits, lifestyle advice and titration of medications as the clinician would see fit. And the intervention group instead get this take home blood pressure machine, which initially they use a couple of times a week. And then they have a plan which is written out by their clinician to tweak their medications um, which is sort of fed to them um, through their digital intervention somehow. And once they're in their target range um, of blood pressure, they can then reduce down the frequency of the monitoring. Um, and it was nice to, to read in this study that patients were involved in having designed and shaped the way that that information was given. And they were looking at whether this digital intervention could improve um, blood pressure control around 12 months later by a margin of five millimetres of mercury. So what they find is that clinic blood pressure dropped from about 151 over 86 to 138 over 80 in the intervention group after 12 months and from 150, well pretty much the same in the control group to 141 over 79. Um, so there's a mean difference of 3.4 millimetres of mercury between the two groups in their systolic blood pressure and not very much in their diastolic. So I think my reading of this study is that it is a negative trial, but it's been reported in a fairly celebratory manner. So Joe, you care for people with hypertension too. 
What are your thoughts on it? Do you think there's uh, any action points for you before I share my thoughts? Yeah, no, I actually thought this was a pretty important study. I mean, first of all, it's very well designed and it's an intervention that's potentially really important because it puts patients at the center of their care and allows them to do their own monitoring and, and, you know, make decisions, reach out to clinicians as they need be with better information. And, you know, it's a bit, hypertension management's difficult and challenging. And so I was really excited to see this intervention. Uh, And what I would note, though, is not only is it, to me, also a negative study, they didn't meet their pre-specified, you know, threshold for clinical difference. It was clearly negative on the diastolic, even though it's written very positively and favorably, which I guess is a, you know, a black eye on us as editors of the BMJ that this kind of got stylized (laughs) to spun favorably through, uh, which is disappointing to see because we discussed this uh, and, and many of the editors read this as a negative study. But it was also actually not as interesting to patients as I thought it would be. I, this was one of the surprises to me. When they uh, originally identified people with poorly controlled uh, hypertension, they reached out to more than 11,000 people to potentially participate in this trial, only 12% of whom said that they would be interested. And like when you when you reach out to patients who right you don't expect everyone to say yes but this is like we have this intervention you'll get this monitor at home you'll be able to manage your blood pressure better or nothing you know wouldn't that be great and the fact that you know only just over 10 percent of people were enthusiastic about that i thought that was kind of interesting and then uh so the, the the actual population on which they tested this was a pretty narrow group of the potential people in our clinical practices for whom it would be relevant. And even for that group, that likely very motivated group, it didn't work. So to me, this is without question a negative study. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that it was done. I'm glad it was designed well to answer the question. Um, But it means that uh, this isn't going to be, you know, one of the sort of tools in our toolkit that we can use to help patients manage their blood pressure better. I guess it didn't seem to me like a game changer, but it did seem to me that it's an option, I suppose. There's not much difference between the two groups and both groups did have a drop in their blood pressure, which I think is is relatively meaningful drop overall. That We see that all the time. When you identify people for a trial based on their clinical condition, when, if you're looking for people with uncontrolled blood pressure, a certain mm. proportion of them will naturally have improved blood pressure. Blood pressure goes up and down, up and down. It's very highly variable. So if you're, if you're looking for people with uncontrolled, some proportion of people will become controlled over time just by virtue of, mm. you know, that month they're eating less salt or, you know, maybe there's less stress in their lives or who knows what it is. They're, just, they're, blo- they're taking their meds then. And they were in a study. They probably felt well, And they were in a study, to- right? So, <laughs> so, the, so the fact that both groups way. got better to me is, you know, further cements the, ah, this doesn't oh. work. And I was trying to be optimistic there, but do you think it has no use even in the context of um, wanting to do more medicine remotely? I mean, do you think this is a kind of harmful intervention as such? Well, there's no suggestion that it's harmful. I mean, it costs more, but it's not it's, it's not harmful. And, you know, maybe blood pressure isn't in itself the only important thing to be measuring. I mean, maybe patients saved a money, time, effort and anxiety by having to go to the doctor to get their blood pressure measured or having to find go to the pharmacy to, to get their blood pressure measured. So there, there are other ways that this intervention may have helped people. But it, it wasn't in controlling their blood pressure. 
Do we know why it was uncontrolled in the first place? Because that would seem to be something, you know, it sounds like this might be almost a behavioural intervention or something going on here. So what it was doing to actually help people in the ones it did help. There, there are, there's a lot of research that has demonstrated that the rates of blood pressure control in the general population are not nearly as good as you would hope. <laughs> you know, it's like 30, 40% of people have, who have di- a diagnosis of hypertension have uncontrolled blood pressure. So I guess we, we don't have a start here and we hadn't really started doing it, so we don't have a stop. We just have a kind <laughs> of um, inertia to end on there. <laughs> Well, that's, you know, that is going back to the old days of talk evidence. We never really had to start and a stop. We always tortured it into that, uh, that framing anyway. Well, I think that's about all we have time for this week. Um, but it's been a great pleasure to have you back, Joe, to join us. You've really excelled yourself on observational research. I'm sure you'll be pleased to hear being a professor and some sort of world expert in it. So thanks for sharing your your pearls of wisdom with us. Well, I'm always happy to join the podcast, Helen. Duncan, thanks for having me. And to us. Duncan, and to Duncan, who really delved <laughs> into, into long COVID and got, got his head twisted in that Med Archive paper. You're going to regret saying yes to that joe it's going to be every time there's an observational question uh, i can do randomized controlled trial questions too as long as it's general medicine I, I, i'm, I'm <laughs> well that's good to know uh so as you took the beginning helen i will take the wrap up thank you uh joe for joining us uh thank you helen for for joining us too um as always i'm going to say as every other podcast that you've ever listened to says, please uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts from. And there you can also give us a rating and let everyone know how much you've enjoyed it. That's it for this episode. We'll be back very soon. Before that, we have more big interviews coming up and more of our second wave podcast uh, looking at what's happening in the front line of the NHS. So until then, uh, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Take care out there.